We're going to spend some time studying the Bible now, and I just want to reiterate, the class starts tonight. This is a great opportunity. We've got experienced Middle East partners that are going to be leading that class for the next six weeks. Uh, for those of you that want to learn more about discipleship and how it works uh, overseas and how that can, that same cross-cultural, like, what does it look like to follow Jesus in a different circumstance? We can follow Jesus that way here as well. So this is a great opportunity to learn. If you've never been in a group before as well, and you're thinking about joining a group, this is a nice little short commitment, six weeks, so I encourage you to check that out tonight at five o'clock. All right, we're going to spend some time in the Bible. We're in our series called The Messed Up Church, and so as we've been studying the church in Corinth in chapters five through ten of 1 Corinthians, we've been seeing some like crazy over-the-top struggles that this church has. And as we look at that, we're tempted to say, man, look at them, they're really messed up, but we're cool, right? Like, we've got everything together. In reality, when we're honest, we recognize we have these same dysfunctions, these same problems that the Corinthian church has. As a matter of fact, all people are broken, all people struggle. We're all stumbling along, seeking to follow Jesus together. And so we've been learning really good lessons from the Corinthian church about what it looks like to trust Jesus with our unique difficulties. All of us come to the table with different struggles, different desires, different burdens that we carry, and Paul is going to keep pointing all of us back to Jesus. And what we want him to say is, you know what, as long as you're a part of this political party or that political party, or as long as you're with this tribe or that tribe, or as long as you're with this group, you're okay. But that's not what he says. He says, you need Jesus. I need Jesus. We all need Jesus, and that's where we find our unity together as a messed up church. So this week, we're in chapter 7. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, it's page 956 in the Black Bibles, maybe 957, we're close to there, 956, 957 in the Black Bibles that you'll see under the chairs. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're calling it this week, Greener Pastures. Greener Pastures, that's why I asked Chris to uh, sing the song from Psalm 23, a song called Rest, it has this concept of finding our rest in the greener pasture of Jesus himself. We are all tempted to think, man, if I could just change these circumstances, and if I could get from here to there, whatever there is, then I could really walk with Jesus. And Paul says, no, you need, you need to bring Jesus into your circumstances. Um, there are a lot of famous stories about this, man, I just wish I could change everything, and then everything would be okay. A, a story I was thinking of this week as I was talking to Chris about it was the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. How many of you have seen It's a Wonderful Life? Um, remember, things were going really bad for him. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you should go watch it. It's a classic, okay? Um, things are going really bad for him. And he's like, man, I just, I just want to give it all up. I wish I was never born. Uh, this angel shows him what his life would have been like or what the world would have been like if he had never been born. There are a lot of other movies that, that play on this, you know, Faustian bargains that we make where I wish I could, if I could just change this, then everything would be okay. I, th- I think of uh, Midas, right? If I could just turn everything into gold, then life would be cool. No, it ruins everything, right? We have this concept that like if we could be God, if we could change our circumstances, then we could fix everything. And God is saying, no, don't, don't try to play God. Invite me into your circumstances. Don't keep looking for the greener pastures but trust that I am who you need to walk with you through whatever difficulty you're going through. This is really helpful in 1 Corinthians because it's, it's dealing with all kinds of weird cultural stuff. We've talked about this, like stuff we don't really want to talk about, you know, awkward things that we keep bringing up. Again, we're going to be looking at sexuality 
this week, but other circumstances as well that we think could keep us from really trusting Jesus? Paul says, no, trust Jesus and then work out the difficulties of the circumstance. So what we're going to do is I'm just going to read one verse that's like a key verse from a long section of 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 24. I'm going to read this key verse, then I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to unfold 24 verses, verse by verse. I actually made a calendar mistake. I I planned like two weeks in a row, and accidentally, you're getting now two sermons for the price of one, so you should be grateful for that. Um, I was really planning on breaking this up into two separate separate sections, but messed up my calendar. Um, Speaking of, next week, Joey is going to be preaching the rest of chapter 7 for us. Yeah? Come back for that. Pray for him as he prepares. Joey Colon, our assistant pastor, is going to do a fantastic job. And then the week after that, Lucas uh, Turner is going to be preaching, one of our ministry interns. He's going to do a great job as well. This is a blessing for you. I get to do most of the preaching here, and I love to do it, but it's also good for you to hear from other voices. Uh, We're all committed to the same word and to the same gospel, and so uh, we've got a great opportunity to learn from them the next couple of weeks. I'm also happy to share the load. I was joking with the morning service. When I decided to preach 1 Corinthians 5 through 10, I knew it would be hard, but I've been preaching long enough that I was like, yeah, I can do it. I can do hard stuff. You know, that'll be fine. And now I'm doing it, and I'm like, wow, this is way harder than I thought it would be. So these guys are going to help me out. They're going to take a couple of weeks, and then, and then we'll be back after that. Um, so greener pastors, 1 Corinthians 7. I'm going to read verse 17, all right? Verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. You got that? It says, live the life that God has given you. Now he's going to give caveats. He's going to give special circumstances. You know, if, if you're in a really difficult circumstance and you've got an opportunity to get out of that difficult circumstance, like, of course, take that opportunity. If you have a terrible job and you can find a better job, of course, go for it. But don't think that that is the magical secret that's going to make you obey Jesus. Jesus is what you need to bring into your circumstance. That is really the, the crux of the issue. So I'm going to pray for us and ask that Jesus would meet us here. We believe this is a supernatural act as we submit ourselves to God's word. We believe that Jesus is speaking to us through this word, but that we need his Holy Spirit, that we would receive it, that our hearts would be tender to it. So I'm going to ask that he would meet us here this morning. Let me pray. God, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would help us, that your spirit would fill us, open us up to you, to your guidance. We believe that Jesus has given himself to us by coming to rescue us, to save us, to die for us, to rise from the dead for us. But Lord, we struggle. We struggle to obey you. We struggle to understand uh, some of these um, demands that you place on our life. So God, would would you meet us here in a supernatural way? Would you give us a tenderness to you? a willingness to listen to you. Would you help us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, I think the big idea is greener pastures, that we're attracted to greener pastures. Uh, Another way of saying this is the grass is always greener. You know the rest? Very good. On the other side of the fence, right? What does that mean? It's actually, I, I looked it up. There's like a lot of variations of this. Some of the ancient Latin variations are like, your neighbor's crop always looks better than your crop, right? The idea is this envy. It's the last of the Ten Commandments, covetousness. We shall not covet that which is not ours. It's this idea that I could truly be happy if I had this other thing, this other job, this other home, this other spouse, this other hobby, this other drug. If I had that, then I would be okay. A way to describe this is a a functional savior. What you're saying is, 
that's really my savior. The new job is my savior. The new city is my savior. The new spouse is my savior. And what Paul is calling us to, what Jesus is calling us to, is to trust Jesus. Say, no, no, Jesus is my savior. And Jesus can meet me in this difficult circumstance. Jesus can walk with me through this valley of the shadow of death. His presence with me is the answer that I need. I don't need that greener pasture. I need Jesus. He becomes my greener pasture. And so we see this unfolded in in difficult commands that Paul is making to the church, right? Paul is calling the Corinthian church to a difficult, narrow, and strict view of sexuality. And we just have to put it on the table and say, yeah, Jesus calls us to something harder than what the rest of the world calls us to. And we come to that not to impress other people, not to earn Jesus's love, but we say, I believe first that Jesus loved me, that Jesus gave himself for me, and because he gave himself for me, I'm going to try to follow him. So we just have to clarify this again week after week as we, as we look at strict standards and hard standards and difficult things that Jesus calls us to. We say, I'm going to try to obey Jesus because I'm convinced that Jesus loves me. Because of his faithfulness to me first, I, I love because he first loved me. I'm following him because he came for me. He died on the cross for my sins. He rose from the dead. And so I see him in the gospel. I see that Jesus is worth following. And then together, we all stumble to follow him. We stumble forward to obey, trying to obey him in difficult circumstances, things that are hard for all of us, right? Some of these things this morning will be a little more difficult for some of you than others, but just recognize we all come in with pains and burdens and difficulties. So we have a simple outline here. As we're tempted to run to greener pastures, Paul wants to clarify those things aren't really the problem. Sin and selfishness is the problem, and you need to trust Jesus with your sin and selfishness. So number one, sex, your sexual life, your sexuality is not the problem. It's not actually the problem. It's a symptom. It's not the problem. Your spouse is not actually the problem. I know some of you are like, no, Dave, my spouse is the problem. No, your spouse is not the problem. Please, no elbows today, okay? Um, And then finally, your status, like who you are in the eyes of the world, your status is not the problem, okay? So first off, your sexuality is not the problem. We see this in the first nine verses, verses one through nine, 1 Corinthians 7, one through nine. The idea previously where he'd been pressing us on sexual sin and sexual immorality is like avoid sexual sin, sexual sin will hurt you. We looked at that last week. We've looked at that over the next, over the last several weeks. And so what can happen is religious people can swing to the other side and say, oh, okay, sexual sin, immorality is a problem. I know what the answer is then. We should swear off all sex. Sex is always terrible. It's always wrong. Kind of going to the extreme view and beginning to say, then we'll be closer to God if we swear off sexuality altogether. Kind of a monk lifestyle. And Paul says, well, that, that's not actually the answer. That, that's not actually what I'm shooting for. Paul's going to do something awkward in this text as well. What he's going to say is he's going to bless marriage sexuality as a right and good and beautiful thing. He's also going to bless celibacy as a right and good and beautiful thing that can lead to human flourishing. And that's going to grate at us. I just want to let you know this is going to bug you, okay? Because what we prefer is for Paul to affirm our preference, right? So if we like celibacy, we want Paul to say, yeah, celibate people, that's really the more holy choice. Or if you prefer sexuality and marriage, 
That's really the more holy choice, right? But Paul lays them both out and says these are both valid options. And we just have to recognize that's difficult for us because we kind of have this built-in legalism where we always want to say, my tribe is better than your tribe, right? So we, we want Paul to affirm our team. But here he's going to bless both teams here, okay? So starting in verse 1, he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Um, some translations say not to touch a woman, but it's uh, a euphemism for sexual relations. So that's why this translation says sexual relations. So basically, okay, so the ideal, the good in life is to just forego sex altogether. That's what they're writing. They're asking him about this. Maybe they're stating it to him. Verse 2, he says, no, no, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So specifically, they're starting to bring this in even to marriage. They're not just talking about single people. It's good to not have sex. We, we said that. Yeah, actually, that's God's plan if you're single. Surprise, if you're new today, sorry. Uh, <laughs> God's plan, if you're single, is to not have sex. Again, I know that's crazy. Like Our culture is like, that is nuts. But Jesus says, it's going to be okay. It's going to be good. I, I can help you with this. But here they're taking it even farther. They're taking it into marriage. Paul's like, no, like if you're married, you're supposed to have sex. It's a gift. It's a, it's a part of marriage. So he says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. He, he's going to spell this out more. Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband, right? Verse 3, he's like, this wife is demanding the body of her husband, and he should give it to her, Right? I love what Paul does here, because I don't know if you've ever heard this stereotype, but some people would say, there's this stereotype that men are actually more interested in sex than women are. Have you ever heard that before? Crazy stereotype, I know. But Paul is laying this out in mutuality. He's saying, no, this, this is, it goes both ways. Now, in my research and in my premarital counseling and in my post-marriage counseling and all the counseling I've done with couples... I would actually affirm that, that generally it seems like testosterone kind of adds this stronger drive in men than you see in women. That's somewhat common, but it's not always the case. And here's the thing. No matter who you marry, you're never going to be perfectly compatible. That just doesn't exist, okay? So maybe the stereotype is true. Like maybe men are a little more driven sexually than women are. But Paul is laying out a, a mutuality here. He's saying this goes both ways. Husband, you, you owe your body to your wife. Wife, you owe your body to your husband. Like, that's part of marriage. He's saying this is part of God's good design. It's not dirty. It's not gross. It's like how God has built marriage. It's part of what he's designed it for. This physical oneness is a part of a greater spiritual oneness that we are to share with our spouse. And Paul's blessing it, saying, no, this is good. This is in uh, disagreement with often historic Catholic teaching, even one of the great church fathers that we love on a lot of subject, love the city of God, love the confessions, love a lot of other stuff that St. Augustine wrote. But on sexuality, he and many other Catholic teachers saw sexuality as kind of like a necessary evil for reproduction. But that's, that's not biblically the case. God says, no, this is a good thing. This is a good and help, healthy part of marriage. So we just have to recognize that, that there's a there's a pull culturally, you know, pulling us in this direction, pulling us in that direction. And recognize here, Paul says, no, it's a, it's a mutuality, husband to wife, wife to husband. There's an equality to that. We both are to give ourselves in mutuality to serve the other, both physically and 
emotionally. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own, her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Don't deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. Let me pause here and describe the word authority. This is strong language. Um, what he's talking about is once you've become married, you belong to each other. That's what he's saying. Is he, is he like excusing weirdness and abusive relationships? What do you think? No. No, not at all. He's talking to people who thought it's more spiritual to never have sex. And he's like, no, that's stupid. You're supposed to have sex in your marriage. That's, that's what he's saying. So, so don't take it farther than it needs to be taken. He's saying there's a basic, simple authority of ownership, belonging to one another, mutuality, consensuality that should be a, a normal part of marriage. And that's good and that's God's design. Once you've said, I do, that person is your perfect soulmate. They are the one for you. And you are to love them and serve them and give yourself to them. You're not to deprive or pull back, right? Again, there's all kinds of caveats and we're not talking about abusive relationships, right? We're not talking about someone that's hurting you or uh, we've, we've got to set aside those, those special circumstances. Paul is saying this is the right and good normal use of marriage. Sexuality is made to be enjoyed in the fireplace, in the covenant boundaries of marriage. And it's a right, good, and beautiful thing. He's blessing it. He's saying this is good. Verse 5. Don't deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. So here he's saying, okay, if you, if you want to withhold sexuality, that's fine, just temporarily, right? So we have practices we would call fasting, right? Sometimes we withhold from food or we withhold from enjoyments in life. He's saying, okay, maybe you can fast from sex in a marriage, but it's got to be temporary and you've both got to agree to it, right? You can't have one spouse saying, I've decided now I'm going to be this kind of super holy person that's never going to engage in sex again. He's like, no, you, you can't do that. You're married. You're, you're now committed, right? And that gets back into the authority thing. No, you, you belong to each other. You don't you don't have the right to pull back out of that relationship. You've committed to give yourself to each other for a lifetime. That's the commitment that you've made. So we need to recognize there's this, this pull, this thought that, no, it's more spiritual to abstain forever. Uh, I grabbed a picture here of a Buddhist monk. I grabbed a picture of a Buddhist monk because, frankly, I just think their robes look really cool and they make better pictures. But this often comes into the Catholic tradition as well. I don't want to be disrespectful to the Catholic tradition. We have a great heritage of, you know, Trinity, Trinitarian Christianity, a lot of things that we agree on with our Catholic brothers and sisters, but we would disagree with their understanding of sexuality in this area. That it's like a necessary evil and that you can be more spiritual if you abstain from sexuality. And Paul's saying, no, that, that's not actually the case. Now he's going to bless it and say, but abstaining from sexuality is also great. Again, we just have to recognize the tension of like, we really want Paul to say, this is first place and this is second place, right? And we're like, we don't understand this whole choice thing. Paul says they're both good. That's what, that's what Paul is saying. So let's read on in the text. It says in verse 7, I wish that all were as myself am, 
but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so, just to clarify, he's not saying that the only point of marriage is for people that can't control themselves, right? (laughs) That's not not the only reason marriage exists, right? There's much more lofty and noble and beautiful things about marriage that are said in the rest of Scripture. So we just have to say, man, look to Ephesians chapter 5 and look to other parts, go back to the original creation, you know, in Genesis. There's, There's beautiful lofty visions of marriage. We read a lot of those kind of visionary things at weddings, and they're good and beautiful. But he's saying there is also this practical reality if we have two choices in our world. Again, if, if you don't want to follow Jesus, you want to do another thing, that's fine. There's a lot of other options out there. But, but with following Jesus, he's like, there are these two narrow options. There's celibacy, the life of singleness. Paul says, that's good. And then there's married life, a life of sexuality. And Paul says, that's good. Here are these two wonderful options. And he makes it so simple. And just recognize our world is so confused and debates sexuality so much that this simplicity is just baffling to us, right? And I just want to call you back to uh, just recognizing that we all have different things we're confused about, right? Like, well, my, but what about my friend? But what about my own experience? But what about this pain that I've gone through? But what about, the, you know, and I would say we bring those struggles to Jesus. We bring those to Jesus. We don't say, I'm going to wait to trust God once I have all the answers figured out. Because none of us have all the answers figured out. We look at the cross and we say, man, God came after me. He loved me so much that he gave his life for me. I'm going to follow him. And we start following him. And along the way, there are going to be some things that confuse us more than other things. But we trust him. We've talked about this before. There's a concept called the third use of the law. And that is that we obey God's commands not to win his love, but because he's won our love. So now I obey him because I love him, because I trust that he's good. I don't always have it all figured out, right? Some of the things I obey, I'm like, this seems, this seems weird. Right? Like, I, don't, I don't quite get this, but I, I trust that God is good. So I'm going to follow what he says. And this is one of those areas. So again, Paul blesses sexuality. Paul blesses celibacy. And he, he makes it very simple. If you want to engage in sexuality, in our culture, our culture says here are the 17 ways to do that, right? And Paul just shuts the door on all of those but one. He says, no, it's, it's lifelong heterosexual covenantal marriage. That, that's, that's the fireplace for sexuality. And we're like, but that doesn't seem fair. We're like, just, just trust that God is good and he, he loves you. And that, that's what we're saying. We don't, we don't have a really complex argument about it. Now, I'd love to answer questions you may have, because I mean, these are real things that real people struggle with. I'm sure many of you do, and I'd be happy to work it out with you, but there are so many variations, right? There are so many like, well, what about this? What about that? There's like, we don't have time to cover every single variation in one uh, sermon. But I want you to know that the main thing is I trust Jesus more than I trust myself, and that's, that's why I'm going to start following him. So number one, healthy sex life takes place in marriage. Marriage is for sexuality. God blesses it. God says it's good. It's a gift to be enjoyed, and we should enjoy it. 
This is not abuse. He's not excusing abuse, but a mutuality. There's a sameness. Now, in a lot of the commands that Paul makes and Jesus makes about marriage in the Bible, there are asymmetrical commands. What I mean by that is they seem different for husband and wife. So uh, throughout the New Testament, husbands are commanded to love their wives. Did you know that? Did y'all know husbands are commanded to love their wives? Did you know that wives are never commanded to love their husbands? Did you know that? Most people don't realize that. Now, of course, you're supposed to love your husband, right? But the command is given differently. It's to respect, submit, honor, esteem. It's almost like men and women are different and have different needs, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of like that. And so Paul, Jesus, the New Testament says, husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husband. Uh, this is Ephesians 5, I think, kind of shows the contrast most clearly. But you can line up all the commands in the New Testament, and it has the same thing. But here, again, he's, he's giving a mutuality. When it comes to our physical giving of ourselves to one another, he says it in very symmetrical, very even ways. Husband to wife, wife to husband. You know, it's just we give ourselves to each other. And no one's truly compatible. And so I just appreciate how here, uniquely, it's very symmetrical. And I just, I just want to encourage you one more time before we leave this section that there's a myth of compatibility. Uh, our culture is very romantic, right? Romance is not bad, but romance is not the gospel. And so the romantic worldview makes us think, if I just find the perfect soulmate, then I'll be in the greener pasture. Then everything will be okay. Then marriage will be easy. But it's never easy. Most couples are not compatible, number one, right? Can I get an amen from the married people? Uh, but even, I know couples that like, they like all the same things. They think the same way. They love the same music. They have the same style. And you know what? Even those couples, they have fights. They have to forgive each other. They have to learn to love each other by grace. So I just want to encourage you that even the most compatible couples in the world are not truly compatible because we're two different human beings and we're doing the hard work of, of learning to love one another. So your sexual life is not the problem. Um, and then again, here's one more thing to say about celibacy. Celibacy is actually great preparation for sexuality. I think this is one of the things that our culture is very confused on. Our culture is obsessed with technique when it comes to sexuality, and that's completely worthless. Sexuality is meant to be a mutual giving of yourself to another person and a lifelong commitment. And practicing technique is not the answer. And so the best way to pre prepare for giving yourself to someone is to abstain from sexuality, is to learn to love people as a friend, and to communicate well. That's the best way to prepare sexually for, for a future married sexual life. So I just want to encourage you, we often get it completely backwards uh, in our understanding of how sexuality works. Okay, second point. This is kind of a continuation of the first point. Logical continuation. Your spouse is not the problem. So your sexuality is not the problem. Your spouse is also not the problem. He says this in verse 10, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. He's saying, I'm now quoting Jesus. The wife should not separate from her husband. Verse 11, if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So now he's drawing on the Jesus tradition, the words we have about marriage and divorce from the Gospels. Matthew 19, I think, is the most complete 
Uh, Mark gives some of the same instructions, but it's a little abbreviated. Matthew 19, it's clear. Jesus basically says, hey, if you get married, you should stay married. That's my gross oversimplification, but that's the big hard idea, right? Like, hey guys, if you're married, you got to stay married. Number one application for this section. Your spouse is not the problem. Now, are there exceptions given? Yeah, there are exceptions given. And if we need to talk about that, we can talk about that. But, but most of us, what we need to hear is, oh, okay, my spouse is not the problem. Even though my spouse might be annoying or my spouse might be difficult or my spouse might bother me, God's will for you is to love your spouse, to serve your spouse, to remain committed to them for a lifetime. That's what God is calling us to. He goes on then and he gives separate instructions here in verse 12. And the reason he's adding to the words of Jesus is because when Jesus gave instructions on marriage, he was talking to a Jewish audience where they all had religious agreement. Now in Corinth, we've got people who are coming to Christ and their spouse is not a Christian, but they are. And that's like this new problem that's happening as the gospel breaks forth into new tribes and new ethnicities. So now Paul's adding new instructions. Paul's an apostle. He has authority. He can do this. He's a Bible writer. So this is still authoritative. He's just clarifying, like we've gotten written instructions from Jesus, and now I'm adding additional written instructions. Paul is saying here in verse 12, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her, right? So they're thinking, oh, my, my spouse doesn't know Jesus, so I should leave him, right? And he's like, no, stay with them. Don't divorce them if they're willing to stay with you. Verse 13, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. And then he goes on to give some explanation, which helps us to understand the thinking of the Corinthians. What's his explanation say in verse 14? For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So here he's explaining to them, this is, this is what they're thinking. They're thinking, well, I now love Jesus, and my desire is to obey Jesus and be holy, but I have this non-believer who's not holy, right? Because they're not forgiven by Jesus. They don't love Jesus, so they're not holy. And does that make me, by proximity, unholy, right? Because Paul's been giving these other instructions, like you need to live a holy life. But we want to, as followers of Jesus, obey him. We want to live in a new way. We, a new way. we want to purify ourselves, right? We want to obey him. And so they're thinking, oh, I, if I'm hanging out with these unbelievers, then that's going to contaminate me. If I'm married to this unbeliever, that's going to contaminate me, right? Just several verses back, he was saying, yeah, don't unite yourself to a prostitute. That's unclean, right? So he was making the argument that we shouldn't engage in sexual sin because that was making us unclean. And here they're like, oh, okay, so I should divorce my unbelieving spouse. He's like, no, 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 the, the marriage covenant stands. Stay faithful to your spouse. And he says, you're actually making them holy. There's this kind of switch between the old covenant and the new covenant, which is really interesting. Um, in the old covenant, they were commanded much more clearly, much more explicitly to separate from those of different faith in much stronger ways. Now, in the New Covenant, we are to separate morally, but not symbolically, right? So what does that mean? That means we don't do what our unbelieving friends say, but we don't have to worry about getting contaminated by hanging around with, hanging around with our unbelieving friends, right? We actually bring the Holy Spirit with us. We make them holy. We, we have friendships with non 
believers. And as we have friendships with them, we love them and serve them. And we bring the presence of Jesus into those relationships and we bless them and encourage them. This is symbolized most beautifully in Jesus' behavior when he walked to the earth, right? So in the old covenant, if there was a leper and you were a good Jew, you kept your distance, right? Because you didn't want to be ceremonially or uh, biologically unclean, right? You wanted to keep your distance. But Jesus would walk up and touch the leper and he would make them clean. Now, in the new covenant, Paul's saying, this is the kind of spiritual power we have. We can actually bring the cleanness of Jesus into our relationships. We don't have to walk in fearfulness. Many of you, if you were raised in religious backgrounds, often, not all the time, but you were taught to be afraid, to be so afraid of being contaminated. Paul's saying, our hope is in Jesus. My cleanness comes from trusting in Jesus. Does that mean I want to take it to the extreme and say, it doesn't matter what I do, I can go party, you know, and blah, blah, blah. No, I mean, there, there are certain... No, obediences that he requires of us, right? He's saying, don't, don't follow the sin of your unbelieving friends, but you can be friends with them. You don't have to worry about like their unbelieving cooties getting on you, right? Like you bring cleanness into those relationships. So that there's some common sense, right? Like if you're running with friends and every time you hang out with these friends, you get drunk. Every time you hang out with these friends, you get in trouble. Okay, there's some common sense you probably want to separate, Right? There's common sense separation that we need to engage in for our own spiritual health, just kind of knowing where we're weak, where we stumble. But Paul's talking, in general, we don't have to have this fearfulness of being contaminated by others. So again, looking at the verse, verse 14, the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. So again, they were making the case, I should get rid of this unholy spouse so I can be holier. I should change my circumstance, get rid of my spouse so I can be closer to Jesus. And he's like, would you do that with your kids? I know some of you are tempted, right? (laughs) Like having kids that bug you, is that why you don't trust Jesus? Is that why you're an impatient person? Because you have kids? I mean, we're tempted to say that sometimes, aren't we? But no, those relationships are not what make us disobedient. Those relationships are not what make us closer or farther from Jesus. We bring Jesus into our relationships. He's saying, don't don't ditch your spouse. Love your spouse supernaturally by the power of Jesus. I grabbed a picture here to give you a vision of what this looks like. Now I'm all for snuggling, but it's not really about snuggling. It's about these are older people. The vision is if you're married, the goal is that you would die together. The goal is that you would be in it for the long haul. That's the Christian view of marriage. When Jesus talks about it in Matthew 19, the permanency of marriage, God's vision for marriage. Do you know what his disciples say? I encourage you to go back and look at Matthew 19 on your own time, but basically his disciples say, if marriage is this strict and if really God intended us to stay with someone for a lifetime it'd be better not to get married. That's what what his disciples said. Like, I appreciate their honesty so much. Like, don't you? Like, read the Gospels. The disciples are not like these super holy guys that had everything figured out. They were just like you and me. They're like, but Jesus, that seems incredibly unfair. And he's like, it's a gift, right? And Jesus clarifies the same kind of thing that Paul, the same logic that Paul has given here. Yeah, celibacy is a gift. Marriage is a gift. 
They're two different callings. One's not necessarily better than the other. They're both good and beautiful. And what's impossible with God is, or what's impossible with man is possible with God. So, so guard your heart against this, God, it's not fair. You're calling me to something impossible. Let me just clarify, like almost everything that God, no, I'm just going to say everything, not almost, everything that God calls us to is impossible. Don't rail at him and say it's unfair. Number one, God is God, right? So he gets to set the rules. But what he says is, I'll, I'll meet you there. Right? Like if you, if you can't reach the top shelf, ask me for help. I'll pick you up. Jesus will meet you in your circumstances. Invite him in to those circumstances. So the big question I want to ask us is, how does our understanding of grace and forgiveness make these impossibly strict standards possible? How does the gospel make the impossible possible? Two verses that you can write down, that you can uh, memorize, that have been helpful for me. 1 John 4.19, it's carved into my wedding ring. And Colossians 3.13. 1 John 4.19 and Colossians 3.13. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. Again, I don't love my spouse to win God's approval. I love my spouse because Jesus loved me first, right? She's also lovely, I just have to say publicly. But there are days when I'm not lovely and she loves me anyway because Jesus loved her first. Colossians 3.13 says, forgive each other as God in Christ forgave you. There are many more statements like this in the New Testament, but those are two really good ones. We love because Jesus loved us. We forgive because Jesus forgave us. That's what you need to stay married for a lifetime. So the big application here is if you're married, what is it? Stay married. Don't, don't chuck your spouse and say, I'll be closer to Jesus if I unload this extra baggage, right? <laughs> Stay married. Are there exceptions? Yes, there are exceptions. There are, there are lots of exceptions, right? And we can talk about that offline. But here, the primary emphasis is like, no, don't throw them away because you think you'll be closer to Jesus without them. He says, invite Jesus in to this relationship. Stay, work it out, compromise, forgive. We're not talking about justifying abuse. We're not talking about justifying adultery and those kind of things. There's exceptions for these things scripturally. What he's saying is most of us, where we live day in, day out, is this person's annoying, and I could be closer to Jesus if I wasn't annoyed, right? That's, that's where most of us live. And he says, no, trust me. Bring me into these difficult relationships. Point number three, your status is not the problem. Your status is not the problem. Look at verse 17. Oh, I missed, yeah, hold on, I gotta look at verse 15. I skipped a part. Verse 15, back to the old point. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. So that's one of the exceptions, right? If your spouse is an unbeliever and they leave, he's like, that's fine, let them go, but don't, don't throw them away, hold on to them. And then he adds this, um, in such cases, the brother or sister is not to be enslaved. God has called you to peace, right? So there's a freedom there, these exceptions to the marriage covenant. But then verse 16 is really important. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So biblically, we're never encouraged to marry a non-believer for the sake of saving them. But Paul's talking to people that are already married, and they come to know Christ. He's like, stay there, love them, preach the gospel to them, serve them, take care of them, and God will use you so that they'll see the gospel. How do you know if you will save them? And this is a beautiful thing. God uses 
means. He uses people like you and me to save people. We know biblically, kind of theologically, from 50,000 feet, God does the saving. But how does God do the saving? He uses people like you and me to share the good news of who Jesus is and to serve people in love faithfully over a lifetime. Okay, third point. Now we can move on. Your status is not the problem. Verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. So that's where we started. Verse 17, this is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So when he talks about counts, he's saying where the rubber meets the road, in your life, what is Jesus seeking? He's seeking for you to be obedient to him. That's what he means by counts, which is separate that from our forgiveness before God, right? Keeping the commandments doesn't save us, but keeping the commandments is what allows us to impact our world. As we love others and obey God, that has an impact in our world. He's like, this is what you should be focusing on. Now, talking about what counts before God for salvation, that's Jesus on the cross for your sins. And the New Testament is very clear about this. So we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. And Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, and then that works itself out in obedience and in new life. We're not saved by that obedience, but because of what Jesus has done for us, now we want to obey him. And so then we work that out. We keep the commandments. We obey Jesus. Verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it. And here's the great parenthesis. This is where your prayer life comes in, okay? You ready? He says, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. So this is the contentment plus common sense way of the Christian. Do you have a terrible boss? Don't believe that your terrible boss is the only thing keeping you from trusting Jesus. Trust Jesus, even with your terrible boss. And then Paul's like, oh, but can you get rid of the worst boss ever? Yeah, get rid of him, right? Like, would it, could, could you get a better house? Could you get a better job? Could you change some circumstances? We've got a lot of freedom to change our circumstances. He's not saying contentment means I never change anything about my life and I just sit there, Right? He's saying, yeah, of course. Like if you're a slave, if you're a bondservant, if you can get freedom, of course, get your freedom. He's saying, but don't make that a circumstance that keeps you from knowing and trusting Jesus. That's the issue. And so that becomes a part of our prayer life. Like, Lord, I'm really struggling with this relationship. I'm really struggling with these desires. I'm really struggling with this addiction. I'm really struggling uh, with this sickness, with this job. With this circumstance, we, we offer that to Jesus in prayer. We cast our cares on him because he cares for us. We can have an honest prayer life and we can bring those things to him, just like we saw Jesus doing in the Garden of Gethsemane. If there's any other way, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. And we, we rest with my status is not based on my circumstances, my heavenly, eternal ultimate status is what God says about me and Jesus. If you've trusted Jesus, God is pleased with you. He loves you. He's adopted you. You're in his family. You're his child. That's your ultimate status. 
And Paul says, don't confuse your temporary status with your ultimate status. Those are two different things. I like to say your primary and your secondary identity. I'm a Texan, right? Uh, I'm an American. I'm a Bell Countyan. Is that the right way to say that? Right? I'm a preacher. Uh, I like to ride my bike. I like to whistle. Right? Like there's all kinds of things you could say. This is, this is who I am. I find certain things beautiful and other things ugly. I hate grapefruit. Right? There's all kinds of things I could tell you about my life, but that's not ultimately who I am. My ultimate identity, my ultimate status is a child of God. And everything else is secondary. And so as you're sorting out your status in the world, Paul's like, something's making you miserable? Yeah, change that if you can. But don't let that keep you from following Jesus. Some things in your life are sinful? Stop that, repent from it, turn from it, right? And follow Jesus. So we're constantly sifting and sorting through these issues in our life. Verse 22 says, He who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman in the Lord. Seeing if you met Jesus as a slave, as a bondservant in a terrible job, you've got ultimate freedom in Christ. And whatever circumstance you're in now is temporary. Can you improve your circumstance? Go for it. But know that one day in heaven you'll see him face to face and everything will be made right. Verse 23, you were bought with a price. Echoing the language we saw last week. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Again, contentment in your circumstance plus some common sense. He's saying, whatever your situation when you're called, just stay there, don't worry about it. But he gave the parentheses, right? He gave the like, oh, if, if you can change it, change it, right? But ultimately, be content in Jesus. Don't think that the circumstance is what's determining your relationship to God. It's not the circumstance. Bring Jesus into the circumstance. Bring Jesus into the situation. So no matter what our status is, our sexuality, our class, our ethnicity, our background, our education, that, that doesn't determine whether or not I'm going to love and trust Jesus. I look at the cross. You're confused about it? We look back at the cross. We say, okay, I see the story. I see who God is. The disciples told Jesus, just show us the Father. And Jesus is like, you, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Look to Jesus. Look to what he's done for you on the cross, and then you'll see who God is. And then you can take the next steps of following him, of trusting him. So the question before we finish this is, do you have a particular circumstance that you're trying to change right now? I would say you've got to offer that to Jesus. I've got to offer those to Jesus in my prayer life and say, Jesus, I really think it would be better if you changed this circumstance. Can you help me to change this circumstance? And then we also pray, but not my will, your will be done. Help me to obey you whether this circumstance changes or not. Whether I get the different house or not. Whether I get the better boss or not. Help me, Jesus, to trust you. And we recognize that some of them are off limits, right? So some circumstances he's saying, we can change. Others, you're married, what is your call? Marriage, that's your call. You're celibate? He says, hey, if you're celibate, your call is to remain celibate unless you get married. And then you have a new calling, right? And he blesses both of those. So there are certain circumstances where we have limited freedom 
But it says we, we offer those to him. We say, Jesus, help me to sort this out. Help me to figure this out and help me to obey you no matter what my circumstances are. So Psalm 23 is the song that Chris based the song Rest on. Um, in this Psalm 23, we recognize that the Lord is our true shepherd. And what I want you to understand is that means your job is not your shepherd. Your sexual freedom is not your shepherd. Your relationships, whether perfect or broken, that's not your shepherd. The Lord, Jesus, is your good shepherd. And he promises that he will lead you to greener pastures. And the song makes the turn, which I think is exegetically sound and a representation of the gospel, that not only does our good shepherd lead us to the green pastures, but he gives us himself. He is the greener pastures. And he is where we find ultimate contentment. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us and you have called us to yourself. Help us, Father, to be faithful to you no matter what our secondary callings are. No matter what station in life we find ourselves in, will you help us to trust you with it? God, we, we all have different temptations. We all have different burdens. We all have uh, different aches and longings in our hearts. We offer those to you. We ask for you to meet us here to help us to see you in your goodness. We cast our cares on you because you care for us. We thank you that you love us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.